It is good to be with you this morning. I hope you are happy to be in the Lord's house. And it is such a privilege to be with you again and be speaking with you. We are in, obviously, a different text this morning other than Mark, our natural sort of normal procedure as it has been on Sunday mornings. This chapter, chapter 34 of Genesis, has kind of been ruminating in my head, so I figured it would be best just to get all those thoughts out. So that's what we're going to try and do. (laughs) Um, And I didn't tell Nathan or Pastor Nathan to read the particular passage just so I could watch him stumble over some of those more uh, tricky names. I didn't just do it for that reason. But it does kind of introduce our, our text. Genesis 34 is, to me, a fascinating chapter. Not only because of the fact that it has no God in it. You will not see the name of God mentioned in this chapter, but because of its content. I would uh, rank Genesis 34 up uh, among the high-ranking chapters in terms of, of just difficult reads. Many of those chapters would come from the book of Judges, but uh, Genesis 34 kind of holds its own as a chapter that's hard to get through. Just in terms of just reading it, it's full of perhaps love and lust and violence and revenge and retaliation and all sorts of ingredients that we might say make for a good movie. Uh, But in this chapter, they're here and they're presented to us in a way that's hard for us to see what's the reason for Genesis 34. Why do we have a chapter like this? What can we learn from it? What can we learn from a chapter with no God? What can you learn from a a story in a scene like this? Well, I would say actually a lot. There's a lot that is here. There's a lot that we can learn, yes, about justice and yes, about forgiveness. Even here when we see them in their absence. So really what we're going to do here this morning, um, we're just going to walk through uh, this chapter. We're going to walk through it, see what happens, see what goes on, and we're going to look at how this chapter is so uh, pertinent and important for, yes, even our current uh, moment. So Genesis 34 begins with uh, Jacob and his family. They have established and settled themselves in a new area called Shechem. And look at verse 1 again. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, bookmark that particular point because it's important. It'll come up later, I think. The daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Now you have to see, this is Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, but it's through the wife Leah. Now if you remember the story of Jacob, you know that he was tricked into marrying Leah. He really wanted to marry Rachel, but Leah was the one he first married. And so this is, we might say, sort of the, uh, the unwanted wife, so to speak. And you can kind of see that in Jacob's actions as we go through the text. But Dinah, she goes out and she is with the daughters of the land. And she is perhaps making friends, getting acquainted with the surrounding areas. And she's seen by this man, this prince, Shechem. 
She's seen by him. This son of Hamor, as we read back in chapter 33 at the end, he's the sort of proprietor of the city, the ruler of it. He's the one that Jacob actually buys the land off of. And Shechem here, he sees this young girl, Dinah. He sees her, and he lusts after her and takes her, and it says he defiles her. It's a tough read. And obviously, as we're going to see, this, and as I think your text should make clear, that defilement, yes, it is, implies what you think it implies. Yes, Jacob's family understands this to mean rape. That Shechem forced himself on this young girl, Dinah, violates her, and disgraces the family name. And look at what happens. Verse 3, and his soul, Shechem's soul, clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and loved, and he loved the damsel, and spake kindly unto her. He's framing this encounter for whatever it was, he's framing it under the, uh, under the uh, auspices of the fact that, yes, he loved her. He didn't do it out of force. He didn't defile her. and He's trying to sort of couch what really happened. He's speaking kindly unto her. It's, it's, it's romantic. It was a thing of love. He claims he loved this damsel, he says. But Jacob's sons, as we will see, do not see it this way. They do not see how Shechem is sort of trying to frame this act. And in fact, it's clear that defile there from verse 2, it literally means to oppress or afflict. That's what the Hebrew word means. This isn't a chance meeting of sort of star-crossed lovers as Shechem is trying to make you believe. This is a lust-filled encounter from a prince, a person of power, one who has a lot of authority and prestige and sway. And he forces himself onto this young girl. And look at verse 4. He's trying to change the narrative. He says, And Shechem spake unto his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. He's trying to weasel now out of his way, out of what he's got himself into, by saying, I'll just marry her. I'll marry her. That will make it okay. And he stresses this to his dad. Number one, that's kind of got to be a weak thing, going to your dad to fix the problem. <laughs> But that's what Shechem does. He goes to his daddy, Hamor. And he says, I really want to marry this girl. Even though his words were saying that. His actions were anything different. So look at verse 6. Hamor goes. And he goes to meet Jacob. To, as following the customs of those days. Discuss sort of the terms of this marriage. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob. To commune with him, to meet with him, to negotiate the terms of a marriage, which of course in those days was much more, uh, much different than in nowadays. They're working out sort of the dowry, what was going to happen, and how they were going to exchange uh, this daughter, perhaps for whatever they're going to exchange her for, in this betrothal. But look at verse 5. It says, And Jacob heard... That he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field. And Jacob held his peace until they come. And look at verse 7. Because now they come. They come and see this meeting. And the sons, verse 7, of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved. And they were very wroth. 
Because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. They were angry. They didn't see this as a romantic encounter. You can see it. They were wroth. They were wrathful. They were angry. They were enraged at this whole scene. Jacob hears this news and notice that it says he does nothing. But now his sons come and they insert themselves into this conference, this meeting between Hamor and Jacob. Now that isn't something that's totally unnatural. You have to understand sort of the culture in these days. And it was customary oftentimes for entire families to play roles in sort of these approval of, of marriages. But what is unnatural is just how vocal Jacob's sons are here. They're outraged. Grief and anger fills their mouths and their hearts. But I think most important is the fact from verse 5. That Jacob was silent. Jacob held his peace it says. Now I don't think this is just a passing comment. I think this is very significant for exactly what Jacob does throughout the rest of this chapter. Remember again like we mentioned before. Dinah was the daughter of Leah, the unwanted wife. I have to imagine, this is just me speculating, that if this was the daughter of Rachel, I don't think that he would be silent. I don't think that he would just wait around for his sons to come back and give their two cents in this conference. I have to wonder if Jacob would be as quiet. Nonetheless, look at what happens. Hamor is communing with Jacob, verse 8. And he's laying out this proposal for this exchange in marriage. He says, Hamor communed with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. And make ye marriages with us. And give your daughters unto us. And take our daughters unto you. And ye shall dwell with us. And the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein. And get ye possessions therein. He's... Sort of posturing this whole thing as a mutually beneficial arrangement. You can take from us and we'll take from you. We will join ourselves together. It says ye shall dwell with us. We will become partners in trade and in business. In success in all areas of life. We can be uh, dwelling together therein. See he's. Taking this opportunity to establish good trade terms, so to speak, with this wealthy and successful Hebrew, Jacob. He's sort of uh, trying to buy into his favor. And look who speaks up next. Look at verse 11. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes. And what ye shall say unto me, I will give Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. He's chiming in again. He's reiterating his love and desire for Dinah. Again, you can see, uh, to me at least, I think you can see through it. He's trying to frame everything here. He's trying to control the narrative of what happened. And now he's trying to buy the favor of their family. 
Ask whatever you want. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. Just let me have her to marry. Let me let this situation go away. Whatever you ask, I will give it to you. And he's reinforcing his love for this girl Dinah just by offering riches and resources unto her family. Whatever you ask, I will give it. But notice who speaks up. Look at verse 13. And it says, and the sons of Jacob answered. Notice, they are the ones who are vocal in this negotiation. Not Jacob the father, it's the sons. Look at The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. And look at what they offer. But in this we will consent unto you. If ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you. And we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. What an interesting turn of events. Jacob's sons are now requesting that Hamor and his men, Shechem and all of his buddies, uh, become and uh, align themselves exactly with how they are aligned in terms of the covenant. Remember, the, the circumcision was a sign of the covenant of God. Here they're using this almost as an offering, a sign of giving them peace. If you do as we do, we will dwell with you, he says. We will be one people. You can see how they're turning this negotiation around. They're framing this entire thing as such would bring honor to both families. We will be one people. We will be one sort of collective unit. But it's so important to read again verse 13 because they answer them. Look at verse 13. They answered them deceitfully. The entire thing is a farce. The entire thing is not truthful. They're not honest with this arrangement in terms of actually wanting them to be a part of them. It's all pretense. It's all for show. It's all arranged. You see, under the pretense of giving them and inviting them into the covenant, they're actually being deceitful to them. They're seeking to weaken them. They're seeking to deceive them and trick them. And you have to see it because it says they're Jacob's sons. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Jacob, the deceiver, is now having his sons follow exactly in his footsteps. They're acting treacherously. And look at what happens. Verse 18. And their words pleased Hamor. And Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not. He didn't think twice about doing this thing. Because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city. And communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land. And trade therein for the land. Behold it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters for, to us for wives. And let us give them our daughters. 
Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us shall be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gates of his city. And every male was circumcised all that went out of the gate of his city. So they agree to this. These, these terms they are pleasing unto the ears. It's got to sound sweet. Now they don't have to give up anything. They were willing to say, whatever you ask, we will give to you. Now it's just a momentary discomfort, perhaps. And these families would be united. A a sort of industrious future would be secured in the bringing together of these two families. Sounds like a good deal. That's why they don't think twice. It says they deferred not They didn't delay. They weren't hesitating in reporting to the men of this city. Here's the terms. We can uh, have a substantial and and a secure future with this new family. All you have to do is follow us in circumcision. And the deal is sealed, so to speak. But, again, this is a deceitful scheme from Jacob's sons. They aren't satisfied with what went down. You can see that in their voices. You can hear that as they're quote unquote negotiating. And that's why they they concocted this whole arrangement. They aren't being truthful. They aren't really seeking a political alliance or sort of a religious partnership with this new family. They were actually seeking satisfaction of rage. The defilement of their sister Made them think that the whole city was worthy of their wrath. Look at what happens. Verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore. That two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren. Took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword. And took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Interesting reaction. You can see right through it. They offered these terms and said, here, come be a part of us. All the while, they were seeking to keep them weak so that when they came upon them, they could do so, as it says, boldly. And notice who leads the assault. It's Simeon and Levi, as it says, Dinah's brothers. They were the blood brothers of their own sister whom they saw was defiled. And actually was they saw and their father was just kind of being ignored through his silence. And here they're taking up arms. They're taking matters into their own hands. We will get justice. We will avenge our sister. The sons of an unloved mother take the matter of Jacob's, their father's inaction. At the violation of their unwanted daughter in their own hands. They take it into their own hands. It's a horrific scene. They're killing all of the men of the city. 
They're plundering all of the possessions and wealth, as it says, of the city. And they're taking the wives, and it says the little ones captive. Is this justice? Well, in Simeon and Levi's eyes, it certainly seems so. But look at what happens there at the end. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, verse 30, Ye have troubled me. To make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me. And I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? You could notice Jacob's response. You notice the terms that keep coming up as he's speaking there in verse 30? I and me. He's, again, uh, he's curving into himself. He's not necessarily frustrated that his sons have now committed this thing. That they have now committed this massacre. He's not frustrated even at the fact that now these, that they broke this covenant. And turns again to self-preservation and self-protection. Look what you have done unto me. You've made my name stink in the land. You've made me an abomination with all of the surrounding regions. This reprimand here is not for the repercussions of this son's massacre. It's just the fact that now he is in a more struggling situation. It's more difficult now for him to get out of this web that he keeps getting himself into. His name stunk in the land, he says. It's now a detestable thing. Because of his son's violence. His son's vengeance. And they refuse. You can see their position in verse 31. Should he deal, meaning they, the, 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 the Shechem and Hamor, those, should they deal with our sister as with an harlot? They refuse to admit their wrongdoing. They claim to be upholding their family's honor. And they're pointedly asking the question to their father. Should they be allowed to deal with our sister as with a prostitute? No. We are going to uphold our family name. That's at least what they're thinking and saying. And you can see right through their accusation. Look at how they refer to Dinah. It says, with our sister. Not your daughter, but our sister. The one that you have kind of left alone because of your silence. We are claiming her because we're her brothers. We're standing up for her. They perceived Jacob's inaction as a complete disassociation with his own daughter. And they took up arms then because they thought that that was the just thing to do. It's a tragic narrative, is it not? There's no God here. There's no beauty here. There's no uh, thing good that we can sink our teeth into. At least at first glance. It's actually just the epitome of dysfunction. Which actually makes it all the more sensible that these brothers would rise up against one of of, uh, Jacob's other sons. And just a couple chapters later and actually sell him into slavery. It doesn't sound so crazy now, does it? (laughs) So what's the point? What's the takeaway from this passage? What are we to learn here? Well, and when I was doing some study on this, I actually found some really fascinating sort of medieval uh, ways that this story was sort of interpreted. 
And I will tell you, they were not right. (laughs) One of the ways in which this story was presented, the point of the story is not this. It's not an allegory of why women should stay inside. (laughs) I actually found that out. One, One interpreter was using this as a way to keep women inside the house. And many medieval church authorities used it that way. And some even went so far as to make Dinah herself complicit in what happens. She was responsible for it. That's not the point. I just have to be clear. That's not what's going on. But I think also the point is this. It's not to sort of take a side, so to speak, between Jacob and his sons. It's not to sort of align with Jacob and his silence or align with his sons and their outrage. Both were wrong. Both misunderstood justice. Both misunderstood what was happening in front of them. Both of them, all of them, every single person in this chapter, as it says elsewhere in scriptures, is doing right in their own eyes. They're doing right with what they think they know is right. I think the point of this story is to sort of see an utter lack of mercy in the name of justice. I like it's. Confounding, though, that it ends on a question. The story ends unfinished. It ends unsettled. It's unsettling to have it end on a question mark. It's one of those frustrating, that's sometimes good in some movies, where it just ends where you don't know what happens. This is kind of how it ends. We don't know what happened after this comment. Vengeance was had, yes, but justice was absent. Just like God is absent from the entire chapter. Let me suggest to you this. That the point of this story is to see just that. Of how man in and of himself fumbles over justice. He doesn't know what to do with it when he gets it. When he is seeking after justice. He misuses it. He cannot fathom true, unsullied justice. And the whole chapter here, I think, might conjure up scenes from courtroom movies or television shows where the bad guy always gets punished. And from one perspective, that happens. And the plot of Genesis 34 could read like a modern movie, perhaps. And it actually reminds me sort of of the story of Hugh Glass. Have you ever heard of the legend of frontiersman Hugh Glass? Anyone? Well, good, I get to share it with you. So, Hugh Glass is an American folk hero from the 1800s. And there's lots of tales surrounding his life. He has lots of folklore that uh, surround his life. So, it's not always uh, entirely sure. You're not always entirely sure if what you're reading is really truthful or whether it's kind of exaggerating. But if you look him up, you'll know him as an expert fur trader and tracker and frontiersman. And the one thing that we do know is that he is known for traversing over 200 miles in the South Dakota tundra after being left for dead by fellow frontiersmen after he was attacked by a grizzly bear. That is true. He was attacked by a grizzly bear in, as they were on this mission uh, to collect some of these furs. He's attacked and he's left for dead by two of his patriots that are with him. And he goes on the search for these men who left him for dead. He he crawls out of his near death 
state and actually is healed back to life as he visits various Native American tribes on his way. His story is kind of remarkable. You look it up and you're kind of astounded at it being true. And it was recently adapted into a movie, but the story was changed. And this is why I think it's so fascinating. Because you always see, you know, in movies when they say, based on a true story, and then you look up the story, and like nothing was true, even though they said they had like one element that was true, and that's how they got that little thing on there. So in the movie version of Glass's life, Hugh Glass is motivated solely by rage. Solely by revenge. So they have the bear attack and he's left for dead. And then in the movie version, he sees his son murdered and he's left for dead so he can't do anything about it. And then he goes on the warpath after he's been left for dead. Trying to seek out those who left him there. Seek out, get their uh, heads, so to speak. But in real life, none of that happened. He never got revenge on his betrayers and he never saw his son's murder in front of him because he didn't have a son. He didn't get his vengeance. And in fact, forgiveness actually won in the real way the story is told. He ended up forgiving one of the younger men who left him there. And then the other man who left him for dead, he eventually finds, and he finds him enlisted in the military so he doesn't take his life because he can't shoot a military man. All of this way, 200 miles Perhaps he was motivated by revenge, but in real life, we don't get the Hollywood ending of him getting revenge on his betrayers, on those who wronged him. And in fact, a review for this movie is actually really fascinating, because in the review for it, the reviewer says, the movie adaptation uh, is, or the reviewer said this, the real story is a disappointment because of Glass's forgiveness. I find that very pointed and very interesting. And why is that so? Because we love comeuppance. We love justice. We love when the bad guy gets his due, so to speak. So we can read Genesis 34. And we can read it. And see, yes, the bad guys got what was coming for them. That's not the point of the story. The story proves that we don't understand justice. We don't understand it because we weren't meant to have it in our own hands. Our society might, yes, be obsessed with fairness and and doing just things and being true and fair and impartial. Yet we mess up justice all the time by taking it into our own hands. God says that throughout the word. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 32, 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Or Nahum 1, verse 2. The Lord revengeth. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. He's the one who controls the terms of justice. And we don't like that. We kind of bristle at that idea. Why? Because giving God control of vengeance means there's an opportunity for mercy. Why do you think Jonah got so frustrated at the fact that he was called to preach to Nineveh? Because he knew that in the preaching of this gospel to this city, which was so wicked and dastardly, 
He knew there was a chance that they would be redeemed. (laughs) He bristled at this idea because he wanted God to smite them down. But he was being called to preach to them. And he knew in that very calling that there was a sliver of a hope of mercy. Such is why Simeon and Levi sought to do what they did. They weren't going to leave it up to God. We're going to take it into our own hands. We are going to be the avengers. We are going to be the ones who decide who deserves justice and who does not. Determine who deserves forgiveness and who does not. We like to put ourselves in that position. And it reminds me of, of a recent story. Have you, have, did you read or hear or see the story of Amber Geiger and Botham Jean? Anyone know that story? So, the story goes like this. Amber Geiger is a Dallas police officer. And one night she goes into her, what she thinks is her apartment, and she shoots a would-be intruder. And the would-be intruder falls to the ground and eventually dies. And it come to find out this is not her apartment. Somehow, someway, she had mistakenly went into the wrong apartment room and she killed the one who actually owned it. He tragically died. It's a very sad scene. If you see the videos of right afterwards, she is completely distraught. It's very sad. Amber was recently convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison because of this entire scene. But what was so fascinating was this. Botham had a brother and his name was Brant. And at the hearing, at the conviction of this sentencing, Brant said this on the witness stand. I hope you go to God. If you are truly sorry, I know he can forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you. Just like anyone else. I personally want the best for you. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. Brant said that speaking directly to Amber, his brother's murderer. He said it to her and then he hugs her right there in the courtroom. Face to face with his brother's killer, he gives and deals out the opposite of what was deserved or what we think was expected. He extends grace. He extends forgiveness and love and understanding. He uh, understands what happened was wrong. But he also forgives her. This scene shocked the world. The scene was all over the news in certain outlets And in fact, as mankind is wont to do at times, they got mad at this scene. (laughs) Many people came out enraged at this offering of grace. And they were trying to turn this entire thing into some sort of political or social conversation. With an agenda, so to speak. And it's sad when forgiveness is policed and spun into your agenda. We don't comprehend 
justice. And we do not comprehend God's forgiveness. God's capacity to forgive goes infinitely beyond our capacity to comprehend it. Such is what we see all the time. Because we like forgiveness to a point. We like it to a degree. We like it to a certain point for certain people. Only when we are the ones who are dealing out forgiveness do we choose to be very restrictive and uh, frugal with it. We like the idea of forgiveness, especially when it involves us, the ones needing that forgiveness. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) And it's very true. We like it when we need it. But when we're the ones forgiving the wronged person, we'd rather see justice win. We'd rather do the opposite of what Brant Jean did in that courtroom. Many people saw that as wrong. You're forgiving your murderer? We would rather see what Shechem, uh, Shechem got. We'd rather align ourselves with Simeon and Levi because we love justice. At least in our terms of it. Forgiveness for them seems wrong. My thoughts go to the Apostle Paul. Think about what he was doing right after he got saved. (laughs) And all the questions that surrounded him as he is now speaking openly about this gospel of forgiveness for the church. The same man who was going around wreaking havoc on the church. It seems wrong that God could forgive such people. But such is the good news of our gospel. The good news of this word that everyone, everyone is being made to share, can have a share in this forgiveness. This forgiveness of Christ the Savior. It goes against our nature to forgive this way, to act this way. It's foreign to us. And that's because forgiveness itself requires we abdicate the throne of our own justice. That we lay down our cravings for reciprocity. And we realize that we aren't the avengers. We aren't the judges. We aren't the arbiters of justice. We aren't. But the untold story of this account and the untold story of scripture Is that there's coming a day when the true and better arbiter of justice will be here. There's coming a day, as it says in Psalm 85 verse 10, when mercy and truth will meet. When righteousness and peace will embrace. There's coming a day, as John 1 says, when grace and truth will dwell among us. It's the person Jesus He is the divine arbiter of love and justice, perfectly balancing grace and truth, mercy and truth, righteousness and peace. He is the true and better avenger, and he's coming to dwell with us. Only he's not bent on wrath, he's bent on absolution. Why? Because he took divine justice for us already. In his own body, he took justice in himself, justice he did not deserve. And the divine wrath was poured out on him. 
God says, God's word says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah 53. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. This is divine justice and it brings about divine forgiveness for you and for me. Is Jesus, the arbiter of truth and grace, he bore the full weight of God's justice for us and making it possible for sinners like you and me, for sinners like the Apostle Paul, for sinners all over the world to be forgiven. To have a share in this grace. This is the message that we are called to share. It's the message that's untold in this chapter, but it's the message that's there because we know the end of it. The answer to the question is God is the avenger. God is the one who will win. Jesus' face is bruised and bloodied all for the wrongs that we committed. And guess what? He looks his accusers in the face and what does he say? Lord, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus didn't avenge his wrongdoers. He died for them. He didn't try and seek out their comeuppance. He sought out their salvation. This is the message that we have. This is the message of divine justice. What is it? It's that Jesus has already taken it already for us. He's borne it all. He's endured it all. And now we are free to be washed clean in the blood that is shed from that cross. White as snow as the prophet Isaiah says. This is the message of scripture. That there is mercy for the vilest sinner in the world. In the bruised and bloodied face of the Redeemer. Who stands there taking justice for you. May we never forget that scene. May we never forget the gravity of our forgiveness. Let us pray.